but that becomes less interesting because ultimately I need to be good at what I do. And being in these spaces, being in these environments, having difficult conversations with, you know, everything from military actors to, to corrupt, you know, politicians yeah. or whatnot, it is a valuable skill in this line of work. Hey, my name is Innocent McGinga, and you're listening to the Learnability Podcast. For individuals seeking growth, we've created this open-ended exploration into our ability and desire to learn. I guess you could call it a combination of what we know and how we learn. So in conversation with individuals, either speaking from experience, belief, or science, we seek to find answers to how to navigate and win in this information age. So this episode is our longest to date, but it's such a qualitative conversation that it wouldn't be made justice if we cut it down. We had the opportunity to speak to Bintu Bali just before he left for his next assignment, where he will be a protection officer for the United Nations in northern Nigeria. Before that, he's worked at a non-violent peace force in South Sudan, so we'll be really getting a global aspect from a really humble guy. We explore some similarities in our upbringing and how this has shaped our um, worldview and maybe missions today. Bintu tells us about the empowering experience of traveling to India to get a personal connection to his roots. He teaches us about holistic approaches to conflict resolution. We talk a little bit about challenges and blessings of growing up as a second-generation Swede in the suburbs of Stockholm and having both our fathers pass away before our birth and how our mothers with that arrived highly pregnant with us in Sweden during the early 90s. So as you hear, it's a wide-ranging conversation and a really inspirational and educational one. So I hope you enjoy it. And oh yeah, I want to throw in a, a shout-out and a thank you to Yumi Temeskin, who's been really great at giving feedback. So he listens to every episode two or three times and take notes with feedback he wants to give, things he liked and, and such. So thank you, Yumi. And I think you will really love this conversation. All right. So we're off. I'm really excited about this conversation with Bintu Bali. Um, Bintu and I, we actually started at International English School of Enskede. Uh, yes, that's correct. And it was kind of weird. We started in the middle of the seventh grade. Yeah. Both yeah. of us. That's quite weird. And uh, I guess we, we noticed quite quick some similarities in our upbringing and and uh, our situation right and got along quite quick yeah yeah definitely um i think if i recall correctly uh i remember you were probably my first friend at at engishka school yes. yeah at english yes. school um and as you mentioned you know there were some similarities in terms of our our upbringing yeah for example our mom growing up with our mom exactly single-headed household that was one thing Tell us a little bit about, about your upbringing and how it has affected your career path, your life choices, and, and we can start from there. I think, I mean, if, if we stick to the topic of, of mothers, it definitely has impacted my, my work ethic, uh, I would say. Seeing her just putting in the work, you know, grinding, um, you know, um, working usually two, three, 
works at the time, jobs at the time, um, balancing that and also finding time to, to be there for your children, mm-hmm. um, finding time to do all the, the household work, yeah. etc. How many are you, children? So it's, it's just me and my sister. You and your sister. Same here. One younger sister. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's quite a big age gap between me and my sister. Yeah. Um, there's seven years difference. Um, so that's different challenges for her as a mom. It's different challenges, but I think in some way I sort of um, grew up quite quickly. You know, I, I had to mature because of the circumstances. Um, and that, I think, enabled me to balance. On one hand, I was sort of a bigger brother. Um, but on the other hand, I also sort of became like a, you know, like an extra dad, yeah, if you will. You're the man in the house. I mean, exactly, yeah. exactly. But with that being said, um, you know, my mother is a very, very strong yeah. woman. So uh, I don't think there was necessarily any need for a man in the house, no. you know, in the traditional sense. Yes. Because she was perfect in, in balancing the, both those, those roles. Being a mother and a father. Exactly, exactly. So I've never really felt, you know, that I've, that I've missed having a, a father figure. I mean, there was a period in my life, which I think is quite, quite common. Um, you know, usually when you have like career days or something like that in, in school and, and people ask you, what do your parents do for a living? You know, they ask you about your mother and your father. And then you tell them, well, my father passed away before I was born. And then there's a lot of questions that comes along with that because children are curious you know so definitely and and we're so um, we grow up with an image of how a family is exactly, supposed to look exactly and i've also had to answer the same questions my father passed away before i was born and you can sometimes be put in a um, certain um, like a box if you yeah, will you or can yeah. be put in a certain box where where they might look at you in a victim situation mm, way, mm. but I've never felt that. Like you said, yes, there was some times where you maybe wished you had that role model or father figure, but you can find it in different ways. Yeah, definitely. And, and manage I, with that. I think, I think in my case, um, I did find it in different sort of, um, you know, um, forums, if you will. So I did, uh, I was a huge kind of TV junkie you know, growing up. And I loved watching some of the kind of what we now see as a classic um, sitcoms, you know, whether it's Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the the father figures that were portrayed in those TV shows, I sort of um, started observing like how does, I mean, it's a weird example, but how does Dr. Phil carry himself? You know, how does he speak? How does he kind of take care of his children? Uncle Phil? Uncle Phil, Uncle Phil, yeah, Uncle yeah, yeah. Phil. yeah my, <laughs> my bad. Um, and, and I sort of, I think at a very young age, I started making these kind of no- mental notes, yeah. you know, seeing what I perceived as positive uh, male role models yeah. on TV or even in real life. You know, if I, if I noticed that a man uh, was carrying himself in a particular way or he spoke with uh, his family members or with strangers with, with respect and with dignity. Um, I, I sort of got really, uh, interested in that. Mm, curious. You know, those, exactly. in those type of personality traits. So I think from a very, very young age, I, I started making these kind of mental notes. I can relate to that as well. Have you ever reflected, not to put pressure, we, mm. we're still both young, but have mm-hmm. you ever reflected 
on yourself as a father. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's um I think we have to reflect on yeah. that because of the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's that's what the lack of privilege does, you know, whether it's you're talking about issues of of gender or race or um you know ec- economic disadvantage that you're sort of forced into thinking about these things where whilst people that might not be in in a similar situation doesn't necessarily have to reflect on on that. We've spoken about that before. Um, Heaven in the previous episode was talking about not being fat and happy, for example. Mm. And I've spoken about how we might in the West generally be too comfortable to make these uh, smart decisions or really work to improve ourselves. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, it goes with all types of crisis. Mm. I don't think it's usually the crisis in itself. That is a negative thing. It's just that it allows you kind of breathing space to reflect on how you want to become as a person, right? And I, you know, losing a, a parent before before you were born um, is, in some way, uh, it, it it can trigger sort of a, an identity crisis in you. I think. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a coincidence that um, you know, if you look at the the prison population, not only in in Sweden but generally in in the West, it, you know. Uh, men, young men that grew up without uh, father figures are are overrepresented. But that's one side of the exactly. story. But then there's another side of the story where uh, a lot of these these young men are also overachievers. You know, because yes, they, they want to compensate. Exactly, uh, yeah. exactly. So I think I think it can sort of work both both ways. Definitely, and I think a lot of luck is involved in that. Mm. But. Also, I believe that the opportunity you touched on it a little bit—the opportunity to reflect mm. on these circumstances, to actually get the right lessons from it and right. apply it to your life—I think that's also a big difference. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and taking that time to reflect, yeah. um, I've I've noticed that I've sort of gotten better at that mm. uh, the older I get. And for me, the easiest way to do that is 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 leaving you know traveling for even if it's just for a few days or like a weekend or and ideally travel by myself yeah um where i can sort of cut all the the noise in the background you know and just digest and process all the ideas and thoughts that i have in my mind um or what i'm experiencing at that given moment of time because that sort of enables me to you know make what feels like more rational decisions rather than just make decisions like in the heat of the moment. That's um, proactivity versus reactivity. Exactly. Many times we're stuck in a life of reactivity mm, without mm. noticing it or taking the chance to be proactive and and make our own decisions about things. Definitely. And I think, you know, coming back to the, the whole aspect of, of losing um, a parent at a young age, you definitely become confronted with death at a very early age. Um, so, as far as I remember, I've always, you know, death death hasn't been this kind of stranger. A stranger, exactly. It's mm. been sort of something familiar, mm. something that I've been exposed to, that I've that I've uh, a conversation that I've had to have uh, with with uh, with my mother and and with other family members, and even everyone you meet, you're constantly explaining the death of someone exactly, exactly. Yeah, you know hiding from it and I think those type of conversations 
um, allows you, it doesn't have to, it doesn't, it's not a guarantee, but it could allow you to uh, become more focused in terms of your decision because you know that you're on borrowed time or you're on limited time. Mm. And I don't want to live according to someone else's sort of template. You know, I, I want to make my own decisions. I want to make sure that I'm not following someone else's path. Mm. Not, not that that in itself is a bad thing, but it's important for me that whenever I make decisions, I'm positively influenced by, by my surrounding. I'm not negatively influenced by my surrounding. And I'm not making decision because, you know, the, the, the environment that I'm in forces me to make those decisions. Um, so being able to kind of travel allows me to, to get into that state of mind. Yeah, we'll get more into your travels. That's right. a really exciting part uh, as well I want to talk about. Uh, but are you born, born in Sweden? Born and raised in Sweden. Born and raised in Sweden. So I was born in um, in this suburb called Jokospari. Yeah. Um, which is um, in the outskirts of, of Stockholm. North of Stockholm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, in my upbringing, I think a lot of people that, that look like me, uh, you know, that have immigrant background, um, felt that they weren't really part of the, the, the rest of society, I think. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't necessarily a, a formal barrier of entry, right? I could, in theory, travel wherever I wanted to in, in Stockholm. I think it's more like a, a, I wouldn't say even culturally, but a more a cognitive kind of barrier that is quite difficult to... Um, to, to break down. To break of, down, yeah. to exactly, to overcome. Um, and I think that's a conversation that a lot of us, you know, that, that have immigrant background uh, kind of deal with, mm. um, that we work on on a regular basis, even today as, as adults. Definitely. And I would like to see more of us talking about it more and with the next generation yeah. to maybe help them uh, break through faster. Exactly. But with that being said, I mean, it wasn't all negative. Uh, like any experience, there are, there are good aspects of it and, and negative aspects. And one of, by far one of the most positive aspects was the fact that I was in a very early age exposed to many different cultures, many yes. different kind of religions. That's you know, a languages. blessing. I really feel that that's... It is, it is. I'm thankful for that. Yeah, and I think, you know, the way we kind of portray these areas mm. uh, is super important. If you kind of portray them as, as being, um, you know, uh, in Swedish we call problem områden. Yeah, you know, trouble area, areas. Trouble areas. Then that will be your your perception of that area. But if you see that as, as, as a sort of a, an area with, with a lot of resources, yes. with, a, with a lot of wealth. Built-in diversity. Exactly, exactly. And, and the fact that I, you know, at a very early age was able to sit down with everything from like Iraqi politicians to, you know, Somali poets to, you know, Turkish activists, mm. etc. It's difficult not being shaped by that, yeah. you know, uh, in terms of your outlook on, on life and, and also on the world as a whole. Did you look for uh, contact with, with these type of figures a lot in your younger years? I think so, because I've always had this sense of um, claustrophobic sense, you know, mm -hmm. that the area that I'm from is too small. Mm. You know, I need to get out of here. I think there are different reasons why, why that might be. You know, I, I think it can be 
a form of escapism, if you want. Yeah. Um, uh, just just to give one example. Um, where do you think that comes from? Like in in the roots. Um, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm I'm still trying to figure that that out. Um, and and I'm I'm fine with that. Like I, I think it will take you know there's certain type of. Uh, realization. I mean, the first step is realizing certain things about you, and then trying to kind of trace down why. Why is that? Yeah. You know, where does this come from? And I don't believe actively trying to trace it down will always get you the solution. You might find a, a fake answer, like you yeah. make up an answer. You could have made up an answer now, but just letting it come when it comes. Exactly. I, think I don't. That's how yeah. you get so it. I don't. I don't have any definite answer no. to to why that is. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to figure that figure that out. I love that approach. And when did your mother come to Sweden? So she came in 1990. 1990. Okay. Wow. That's really close to my mom. She came in 91. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So five days before I was born. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So that's uh, another similarity there. Yeah, exactly. So my mother was also pregnant when she, when she got here, obviously. And uh, she, she keeps on telling me the story about arriving here with like, you know, 200 something Swedish crown in her, in her pocket. Luckily we had some relatives staying here in Stockholm. So, you know, they told her that you will have to work quite a lot to save up some money of your own. Mm. But in the meantime, we'll take care of your kid. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it wouldn't have been possible if, if that support system wasn't, wasn't in place. Even with that support system, it's hard to, understand yeah, how I, they I managed it's it's impossible for me to comprehend the fact that as a 24 year old woman you know she sits on a plane and she travels to a country that she's never been to before pregnant for pregnant, the first time exactly for the first time and she ends up in sweden of all places mm. and i think culturally sweden is quite distinct you know it's it's very different from the rest of the world. We've grown up in it, but we can still feel how this is, this is special. Exactly. Exactly. And just being able to kind of navigate, mm. you know, in that, this new culture, in this new environment. And especially in the nineties, yeah. imagine that time. It's, it's it completely very different, different times. Yeah. Very, very different. Um, so I still, I still, I don't think I will never fully understand that journey, no. you know, that, that struggle that she's gone through. Um, but you can appreciate it. I can notice that on your personality and the way you've been talking about it. No, definitely. I mean, she, um, I, and, and just seeing that strength and realizing that under pressure, people are able to achieve, you know, things that they wouldn't even think of achieving or that they might think that they wouldn't be, they wouldn't have that in them, no. you know? Mm. Um, so... Yeah, she's definitely, you know, one of my absolutely biggest role models. Um, Yeah. So, uh, thank you for sharing. I'd like to continue. So, from school. And that's actually, I I don't know why, but we kind of separated there. We went, I think, different schools. I've always stayed in the south of Stockholm. You stayed in the north. I think we lost some connection there. But I've been following you from afar. Right, right, on social media. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the best part of social media. Um, 
could you give us uh, like a breakthrough? So where did you go to high school and onwards to where you are today? And then we'll get into the juicy parts of your, right, your right. career path. So uh, after we parted ways, um, I think it was in 2007, yeah, right? I believe so. Um, then I started started high school or, or gymnasium, as they call it here in Sweden. And I started at a school called Victor Idberg. Yeah. Culturally, very different type of environment, very kind of um, homogenous, I would say. Uh, a lot of people that came from similar backgrounds, um, you know, very affluent families, etc. High achievers, very ambitious students. So I think initially there was a bit of a kind of a cultural clash, if you will, but it definitely taught me the 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 kind of once again the work ethic, you know, and just seeing that um, that level of ambition amongst young students, it, it was difficult not to be inspired by that. Um, but also hearing the type of dreams and aspirations that they had, you know. In what direction did they tilt in that school? So, in terms of uh, dreams, dreams mean? and aspirations, yeah. So it's called Lilla Handels, which means you know, small school of economics. Mm. So there's this this uh, university in uh, in Stockholm called Handelshögskolan, um, which is uh, very famous for having probably the best economics program in in the country very accredited definitely um and there's a high percentage of uh victoried by alumni that end up going to Handelshögskolan. skolan that's like the the little league yeah exactly so there was a bit of a sort of a connection there uh i think my line of work is quite uh unique um i don't think there are that many people that that have gone to to victory by that ended up working with the type of stuff that i'm working with uh today but yeah it was more businessy type of profile in the school so how did you take that type of profile and education and tilt it towards your uh, next education how did that look i think um especially there's a specific mindset i guess in the private sector yeah. right or or um a specific mindset within kind of entrepreneurship etc you try to kind of identify uh, any given problem and you try to kind of address it in a quite creative way um and and an effective way and i definitely brought that on board and i i still try to kind of remind myself of that all the time everything from my personal kind of profile you know how can i stand out um in this very competitive uh world you know what are the types of skills and what are the types of experiences that will enable me to become the best version of myself in any given you know profession so i think that kind of mindset um was really entrenched in in uh, in that school okay So you took that education, you finished uh, high school mm. and you moved on to, is that when you moved to India or studied in India? So not directly. I, I was facing some personal kind of issues uh, last year of, of uh, high school. Yeah. So I felt that I needed time to just once again, you know, process everything that I was going through. Um, so I ended up moving to, to Norway of all places. Okay. Yeah. What did you do there? 
so I was I was working. I I had different jobs. I was working at McDonald's. I was working at a at a warehouse. Uh, you know, just just trying to earn earn money basically. I there's so much there's so much similarity in our journeys. I think this is the exact time I was in London. Really uh, doing a similar journey in just working, grinding, trying to make money. That was money also in. right after high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd switched. No, it was actually I was twenty by that time. Mm. How old were you? You're 19. Maybe? Yeah, yeah, 19, yeah. 19, 20. Well, around the same period. Yeah, around. All right, so you went to Norway. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, grinding there for how long? Um, about six months, yeah. I would say. And I was working way too much, yeah. you know, like putting in 16 hours a day, something like that. But you do that. And, and what I felt, at least coming back from London, is... After that journey, I was there for about a year. Mm. When you come home, everything for me was so easy. Yeah. So that's when my my real entrepreneurial journey started. And I just was in another flow and kept that going. Easy, easy in what way? Like having, like you said, working 16 hours, spending mm-hmm. I don't know how many hours on the bus going around. I was going for castings, job interviews, jobs, working late night, that type of life and managing that. And then getting home and it's not that level at all. Mm, mm. But you're still in that mode of grind. Right, it's right. It's so easy applying whatever you're trying to do here. Yeah. and For I, me. I think there's also, you know, uh, contrary to to uh, the Swedish kind of point of view, uh, I think there's there's an intrinsic value of having that experience, yeah. you know. Like as soon as you're done with your education, working, um, you know, getting kind of that experience of working a bit more than you sort of have to. Yeah. The extreme. Yeah. But also with that being said, I also know that, you know, us millennials have this tendency or sort of we're forced to work a lot more than than the previous generations. So I don't want to over romanticize no, that. No, definitely. Definitely. That's Good that you said that. Yeah, obviously there are downside down downsides to it. Um, but but for me personally, it was important for me to kind of go through that. You know, um, so once that was done, once uh, I stayed in Norway for a while, I uh, applied for this kind of peace and conflict uh, course yeah. in in south of India. When did you decide you wanted to do that? Was it in Norway before Norway? Yeah, it was in Norway. Norway. It was in Norway. And was it because of that put to the extreme, working that much, you started reflecting and like, what do I really want to do? What's life about maybe in a bigger perspective? Is that what then gave you the path forward? I think I I wanted an excuse to travel. But at the same time, I wanted to tell my mother... (laughs) (laughs) That I'm actually doing something tangible. Oh, yeah. You know? So this was my way of balancing my dreams, but also making sure that my mom was, you know, supporting. No, yeah. Exactly. Uh, Because I think a lot of South Asian parents, they don't mean any harm. Like, they have good intention. You know, they only want a lot of their kids to to succeed. Yes. That goes for Africa as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's, yeah, that's the case for a lot of immigrant immigrant yeah. parents. Because yeah. um, they've had to struggle. They've had to, they don't want us to live that type of life. And there is a fear in that. And like you said, it's good and bad. The intention is good, mm. but also it can be restricting for, for the, the kid. 
in exactly, that case. Yeah, exactly. So I ended up going to India, but one of the reasons why I picked India of all places is because so both of my parents are are from India, and I always felt that there was a bit of a um, that whenever I I did travel to India,、uh, I went to visit my my relatives,、um, you know, my cousins and whatnot, and I wanted to travel to India and experience it for myself. I felt that. That was the kind of empowering experience that I needed, because once again, like growing up as a second-generation immigrant in Sweden, you always have to reflect on your identity,、mm. and I think it's a kind of a classic thing that, that a lot of us say that when you travel to your parents' country, you're treated as a Swede.、Mm. When you're in Sweden, you're treated as something else. So just having that kind of experience of of traveling around India, forming my own kind of impression of of the country, being exposed to the to the richness, to the diversity, to the culture, to the various types of religions,、um, was imperative. Was extremely important for me. Was it an opportunity to connect with the with your roots in another way? I think so. so yeah, but also. Making my own kind of connection, yeah, you know, yeah. not having that connection via or through someone else, which in this case was was my mother. Yeah, you're not anyone's son when you're there by yourself. You're exactly, exactly. Into Bali, exactly. So that was really important for me, and that was also, I think, the first time I was exposed to、um, to the field of of conflict resolution yeah, and you know、that? peace studies. It was very interesting.、Mm-hmm. It was very interesting. And I think the fact that this course had a very holistic way of thinking about this thing—it、mm-hmm. wasn't just the hard approach or the the military approach, if you will, by solving、uh, armed conflict by by having military presence. It was more of a kind of a holistic way of looking at things, you know, looking starting at grassroots levels, looking at different ways of perceiving or or defining violence, looking at. You know how violence manifests itself differently depending on the the context, but also putting it in a wider context, not just focusing on the outburst of violence, but also looking at the underlying kind of circumstances, the underlying factors、yeah. that that ends up causing, you know, enabling, creating that kind of environment where where violence is possible. I've always been interested in in this field. I think even from a young age, looking at、uh, friends or people in my surrounding that that might have taken a very different path, they might have, you know,、um, without going into much detail, but they might have, you know, joined a a, a, a gang or any type of kind of criminal destructive exactly.、Yeah. Um, and I think I was. Even though that life wasn't for me, I was always quite interested in why is it that these young men are so attracted by by this lifestyle? Is it because、uh, pursuit of of wealth,、mm. you know, and, and luxury items?、Mm. Is it because they're lacking something else,、um, you know, in terms of support from home、mm. or, or from school? You know, what there was a lot of question marks, and I, I those. Question marks still, they're still there. 
I wanted to ask if you've found any answers today. I think I think I'm hoping that after all these years, I'm a step closer to finding some of these answers. Yeah. But I don't think these are very complex. Yeah. Obviously, these are very complex. Multifold. Uh, and and each case, I think, is is unique. Um, but then there are also some structural kind of uh, issues, some structural similarities that can be kind of yeah applied to many different circumstances. Yeah. So how long was was the studies in India, and um, what did you do after that? So my studies lasted for three four months, if I recall correctly, and then after that, I, um, I was I was traveling around in in India by train. Which was quite an wow. quite an experience, yeah. For how long time? Mm, I think it was around three months. Wow, you really got to see a lot. I'm yeah, guessing. Yeah, and it, it was it was as I told you before, it was a very empowering experience, mm. very empowering experience. And being able to have conversations mm. with with uh, people from all walks of life, and be able to kind of hear their their experience growing up in, in that particular culture, that particular setting, and some of the challenges that they were facing. And I think that's always been kind of consistent for me throughout my, my life, that I'm very curious in terms of hearing about people's stories. You know, I think all of us are almost like uh, we embody, uh, we are like history books yeah. uh, personified, if you will. That's so true. And you can find a lot of knowledge sitting in people. Exactly, exactly. It might be communicated in a way that you might not be receptive enough yeah. to take in. But if you take the time and you take the, the effort to, to hear these stories, you can, you can find a lot of gems. You, know, you can find a lot of um, important information and knowledge. Um, so that was very important for me. Do you, uh, you, you might not have one and we will skip this if you don't. Uh, do you have any a story like this that sticks out? Um, someone who has shared their experience where you, it really resonated in you or shifted um, your perspective in some way? I think it was more in terms of, um, I think I'm, I'm quite cautious in terms of talking about um, universal um universalism just in general in terms of that one person's experience in, in this part of the world is similar to the experience in, in a different part of the world but there are certain kind of dreams and aspirations and and fears mm. that i think are, are common yeah amongst you know all of us so just hearing about people having struggled in a similar way that my mother struggled mm. having those type of conversations was very important for me to hear because that sort of also sheds light into a, kind of a structural you know challenge or structural problem that exists in many parts of the world where why is it that there are so many single-headed uh, households yes um and why is it that there are so many kind of men that are absent in in their family's life mm. and how does their children's that affect life? the future generations and and society in large. Exactly, exactly. So just having, I guess, those conversations, because the more you sort of listen to other people, the more you realize stuff about yourself. Yes. And the more you realize about yourself, the more you're in position, maybe, like in your case, to actually do something about these things and and, and try to help. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. I mean, that's that's the goal. That's the goal. 
So with that goal, yes, and uh, having travel studied and traveled in India, what was your next step and and why? So my next step, I remember that one of my lecturers uh, spoke very highly about uh, this university in London, called the School of Oriental and and African Studies. Just the, the name of the school got me interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's a very unique place. Yeah, a very unique place in every sense of the word. So I ended up applying to that school, yeah, and I I got accepted to to study a a bachelor degree or a bachelor program in uh, politics and development studies. Seems right up your alley. Yeah, definitely. And I I think what was unique about this this school is that it's the only university I believe in Europe or maybe even in the Western world. Yeah, that focuses on the non-Western world. So it focuses mm. on. You know the Middle East. It focuses on on Africa, on on Asia, etc. That's really interesting because I've been we've been talking about it, and I've been thinking why there's so little of these types of studies. Right. And here's a, there's a dedicated school, and you ended up I ended up studying there. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I felt that that empowering journey that I had in India, I wanted to sort of continue that, yeah. but in a more academic way. So being able to to study these regions, you know, being exposed to alternative stories or, or narratives yeah. that I, I wouldn't necessarily have been able to, to have access to, or it would have been more difficult for me to have access to uh, if I would have studied at, at a different university. So that was extremely empowering and also seeing the kind of the pride and the beauty in other cultures, yes, you know, and not only looking at these regions from the lens of colonialism, you know, but also acknowledging and appreciating the pre-colonial history, yeah, you know, that the exists. Heritage. Exactly. I'm getting more and more into that now, and I wish I was more exposed to it earlier. I'm studying a lot about Rwanda, even yeah. pre-colonial. There's so much there, and I wish I could have been exposed to it more. Yeah, but it's it's never too late, you know. Definitely, and I think that's that's the beauty of of uh, pursuing knowledge. Yeah, and I want to give a shout out to Netflix. Mm. I don't know if it's my feed. It's probably my feed that's tilted this way because me and my girlfriend are interested of this. Right. But we get so much of a view of the world through a, a service like Netflix. Right. Right. It's it's fantastic. So there are good parts about digitalization and we can use this for education and and perspective yeah definitely as i remember remember last time we we spoke in and you used this uh term uh which was uh, infobesity infobesity yeah that really resonated with me uh and i think that that term was really kind of spot on because even if you look at obesity you know, it's it's usually the lack of good uh, nutrients and vitamins, etc. So it's not necessarily that the amount of calories that you put into your body is is not sufficient enough. It's it's about the quality yes. of the food that you eat that causes you uh, to become obese, right? And I think even in this day and age, we are so exposed to information, which could be good, which could be good if we're in control and choose the right. Uh, Quality. Exactly. Yeah. So, and I think that's that's a key word. Mm. So, even though we have access to information, doesn't necessarily mean that we have always access to to qualitative information. Yeah. And I realized this. I was talking about 
Netflix in this way, giving it praise to someone that said, what? I haven't seen any of this mm. in my feed. And that made me realize we have filter bubbles and I'm glad I'm forming my filter bubbles in this way. Right. And you have to realize, sort of have that knowledge that there are algorithms that you can actually shape and control by actively trying to search for knowledge. Exactly. And then it will just come to you. And I think the most challenging part is even being exposed to that, yeah. you know? So how do you go from becoming interested in a subject mm-hmm. and then knowing where to kind of find that, that type of information? Because that can be difficult. You know, that can be really difficult. I'm so, uh, um, I'm so aware of this. And actually, that's why we started Learnability. So. Yeah, which is, is a, I think it's a, it's a very uh, needed kind of initiative. Thank you. And I definitely applaud that. Because that is, that is a challenge. Yeah. Because um, sometimes even, as I said, even if you are interested in a subject, um, it can be quite overwhelming yes. uh, to what, know. What's the first step? You know, exactly. Yeah. What's the first step? How do I even go about acquiring this information, this mm-hmm. knowledge? But my way of doing it, uh, and I, I was very privileged to be able to, to study at, at SOAS. So you, you did your three years there, mm. and then you've been in South Sudan, yeah, well, so right after that, I actually um, traveled back to India first. Yeah, okay. I did an internship at the, the Swedish embassy. Um, so I was there for about six months, focusing on, on political affairs, um, doing mostly report writing and stuff like that. Oh, that's a great exposure to that setting environment. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's, it's a good combination of being in a relatively familiar setting but also speaking about subjects or issues that I haven't necessarily been doing in the past when it comes to India. Because whenever the type of subjects that I'm exposed to when I go to India is related to my family or it might be related to, you know, what should we eat, you know, or (laughs) what movie should we watch or, you know, it's not necessarily these hard subjects in terms of national security and, you know, insurgencies, et cetera, et cetera. So that was very interesting for me to be able to uh, kind of dig deep into into these subjects and and learn that aspect of of that culture, which was very interesting. Once I finished that, um, I started doing my my master's uh, master's program at King's College, uh, King's College London. Back to London. Back to London, where I studied at the War Studies Department, also focusing on on international conflicts. Uh, so there were two aspects of that that program. Yeah. I mean, one was focusing on on global insurgencies. Could you explain that? So insurgencies is basically um, an armed group that is opposing the the state. You know, to put it very in simplistic ways. So it's a non-state actor basically trying to oppose uh, the the state. So you have examples of that. You have obviously different revolutions throughout throughout history and more recently you have you have uh the islamic state is a is an example of a, of a global insurgency very good uh, reference that i think most people can um, can understand uh, can understand today yeah, yeah. Uh, which basically transcends the the national borders of of in this case iraq and, and syria because yeah. their presence or their military presence was was larger than that so I was focusing on, on that, yeah. but also focusing on different responses to, to conflict. 
as I mentioned earlier, not only focusing on on military responses. So bringing back the holistic uh, approach. Exactly, also humanitarian responses, political responses. Why is it that conflicts even, you know, occur? And what are some of the ways in which we can uh, work towards solving them? Did you have any, like, breakthrough moment or your, like, biggest insight? My biggest insight was towards the end of my program. Yeah. End of my degree. Um, and that insight was more of a frustration, I think. Mm-hmm. Towards? Towards the field of academia, to be honest. Because I felt that a lot of the people that were talking about these conflicts didn't really have any real-life experience working in a conflict area. And I felt the way in which they were speaking about the subject was with a lot of kind of confidence, Mm -hmm. almost borderline arrogance. Uh, I probably shouldn't say that, but anyway. No, but (laughs) I'm getting the the view of the situation, like how a lack of a need Mm. to apply themselves to the subject they're studying. Maybe. But also a bit more kind of humbleness. Yeah. You know? Thank you. That's a good word. A bit more humbleness in terms of appreciating the complexity of the issue. Yes. It's very easy to speak about conflicts in a very abstract, theoretical way. And it's important to do so because that's how we, you know, and I said we as if you're working in the field of academia, make sense of the world. Mm. You know, so you try to look at wider trends. You try to kind of structure what is happening on the ground by, by packaging it into a theory, yeah. you know? Yeah. Which makes it easier for, for readers to understand what is happening, but it, it can never fully capture the complexity of, of what's actually happening. That's more a, a way to maybe broadcast the problem, mm. but working with the problem, you feel there needs to be a deeper, more humble approach. I think so, and I, I needed that. So I, I did write my, my master thesis on, on Iran. And uh, uh, I decided to travel to, to Iran. Well, so I did write it in Iran. What year was this? 2017. Okay. How was that? It was very interesting. Um, the level of hospitality mm. that I met in, in, in Iran was just incredible. Um, and I think it's, it's quite, there's a lot of, um, you know, people have different perception, I think, of, of Iran. And I think there's a huge discrepancy between um, the, the, the actions of the government mm. and, and the, the sentiment that, that, you know, common people have, if yeah. you will. I was uh, uh, couch surfing. You were couch surfing in Iran? Yeah, in for, for about city? five weeks. Yeah, so I traveled to, I think, 13, 14 different cities, just crashing at stranger, strangers, you know, couches, basically. Wow, man, that's, <laughs> that's perspective built in. Yeah, yeah, so that was... And I, I wanted that experience because... Um, I was very curious to see how people were were living, you know, what kind of, what's everyday life like. That's the best way to get that perspective. Exactly. And and what's fascinating about couch surfing is that it's apparently one of the largest communities 
a couchsurfing community exists in Iran. I think there are some tourists that do so, but I still think that there's a bit of a reluctancy to couchsurf. I mean, whenever I tell people that I've couchsurfed in Iran, their first reaction is like, "Are you crazy?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it was only a positive, positive experience. It sounds um, like that. What was your thesis on? So it was on on Iranian foreign policy, Iranian foreign policy in in kind of uh, in in central Central Asia and the Middle East. Yeah. I'm getting that a big um, part of your success or a big part of your journey is this: you're not studying this to later get a job or get a role whatever position it feels like you're really trying to learn for yourself for your own benefit not not benefit for your own personal growth yeah and i think that that um that is exactly what what i'm trying to to achieve I, i'm not i've i've never really been overly obsessed with certain type of titles or certain type of organizations that i want to work for or certain type of positions that i want to have it's really important for me to feel that um, I've done everything that uh, is in my power to get a, a kind of a as complete picture of, of that field as possible or that subject as possible. So in this case, being exposed to certain type of environments or, or discussions or contexts where I can get a more nuanced understanding of, of my subject is absolutely key. Um, and then I think that everything else you know, in terms of all these prestigious things, you know, positions and organizations, it will, you know, happen eventually if that's what I want. Naturally, yeah. But, but that's not necessarily what drives me. I want to feel that, you know, I wake up in the morning and actually do a good job, you know? I think that's important. And I think that is why you will have an impact uh, on this world, uh, whatever field you're, you're working in. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean... It's, um, I think it's really important to feel that you own whatever space you're working in and not necessarily be daunted by, by the task, but feel that you have done everything in your power to, to, you know, reach out to the necessary people to get the necessary type of knowledge. And I've been extremely privileged, uh, in terms of having that possibility. So if I've. If I'm interested in, in writing about Iran, then I decided to travel to Iran. You know, if I'm interested in, in reading about the non-Western world, I ended up studying at a university that focuses on it. So actively going to, to those type of environments or contexts yeah. where I can be exposed to these ideas mm-hmm. has, been, has been essential for me. So um, I'm guessing you're... After King's College, you're done with your done and done. You're um, taking the step on from your academic pursuits. Yes. And this is when you get into the field more. Yeah. Am so, I right? so first week in, in Iran, I get an email uh, from an organization that's based in, in South Sudan called Nonviolent Peace Force. It's yeah. an American organization, but they, they work in the field of protection, civilian protection. So it's a single sector um, humanitarian organization, meaning they don't provide any material aid or uh, it's, they're only focusing on the field of protection. Okay. 
What was your expectation? What did you know about South Sudan going in and what was your expectations? So that was one of the reasons why I I wanted to work in South Sudan because yeah. I felt that there was very little media coverage mm. about the conflict. But if you looked at the, the death rate, uh, amount of civilian casualties, they were, uh, they were massive. They were huge. Mm. Um, and This is 2017? 2017, exactly. Just in 2011, South Sudan became the world's newest nation. South Sudanese people voted to split from Sudan, and the referendum ended the longest-running war on the African continent. Salva Kiir from the Dinka tribe won the presidency, and Riek Machar Anwar became his vice president. In 2013, however, Kiir accused Machar of planning a coup, and the country quickly descended into civil war. And it has been brutal. Food aid has been systematically blocked, sparking famine in parts of the country. Those fleeing say forces are killing indiscriminately, often along tribal lines. The conflict is so heated, South Sudan is now the fastest growing humanitarian crisis in the world. It's also incredibly complicated. In a country smaller than the state of Texas, there are 60 tribes, and many of their long-term feuds have become part of the greater conflict. One example, in a town called Wow, the Furtit are farmers and the Dinkas are herders. They've clashed over grazing land for decades. Shortly after independence, the government changed regional boundaries that made those tensions worse. And at the same time, fighting erupted between the government and the Nuer rebels. Some of them fled into Furtit territory, making the Furtit look like rebels too. The government took aim at the Furtits, who then joined the rebellion, and a decades-old battle about cows suddenly became a civil war fueled by tribalism. Now, multiply that a few dozen times, and you'll have an understanding of how complex the dynamics are in South Sudan. So, I guess that sort of sparked my curiosity that why is it that no one is talking about South Sudan? What, what is it about that, that conflict that doesn't kind of attract any media, media attention? Mm. Uh, and I felt that one way of, of, um, of acquiring that knowledge is to read about South Sudan and other ways to move there. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to, to move there and, uh, and uh, kind of form my own opinion about about the, the context and, yeah. and, and learn more. So what did you way. learn and what, what do you think is the answer to why it's not covered more? I think to be, to be blunt, the, one of the answer is um, that it's a, it's a poor African country. And if it's a poor African country with little kind of geopolitical interest or there are no kind of, you know, the traditional big superpowers that haven't necessarily have any um, kind of geopolitical interest in, in, in that, that part of the world, then that would also manifest itself whether or not it's, it's, uh, it's being covered in, in, in the media. Um, so that is, yeah. So wrong. It's, it's in, very... In sentiments. Yeah. From the media side, it uh, should be more based on the biggest problems, get the biggest coverage, not of the course. most popular issues. Of course, Donald Trump tweet, and that that is that is also frustrating. I think, especially if you work as a humanitarian on the ground, and you're trying to engage uh, and bring more awareness around the the conflict. So you were there for one and a half year total. Yes. 
what's your takeaways from that one and a half year in the field? Like you explained, it seemed to be really encompassing times where you were engulfed in, in the whole situation. And I can't even, you, you explained it in a way that gave me sort of a view of, of your time there, mm. but I can't even imagine. So please share as much as you feel comfortable with. So initially I was um, based in in this area called, called Lankian, uh, which is in the northern part of, of the country. And one of the things that this organization that I worked for uh, pride themselves in is the fact that they're quite embedded within the community. So instead of staying in what usually what humanitarian organizations do is they, they stay in quite fancy compounds. Mm you know, with high fences for security reasons. Yeah. But this organization sort of pride themselves into being accessible and being kind of, as I said, very embedded within the community. So that was my first experience being in, in South Sudan. Um, That's a challenge in itself. Uh, it is a challenge. And I mean, I, I don't want anyone that's listening to this to, to misinterpret me, but it is a challenge in the sense that being in a in a in a context of being in a place with no no running water no uh, no electricity staying in what is called tukuls which is like these traditional houses and not being able to communicate with with my mother and you know friends back home um now i obviously you know understand that that it's it's, it's impossible to compare that short amount of period that i was there to to people who actually, you know, live live in these uh, these environments, uh, but it, it it was it was a challenge. Yeah, and like you said, the norm is to stay in these more fancy exactly setups. But that also allowed me to, I think it it does bring you one step closer into understanding the ways in which you know people live their lives, and I think that. Um, it's important that, you know, if you work in the field, there shouldn't be too big of a difference between your life and the life of the, the community. Because mm. that's part of the job. Like, in order to understand the nuances, in order to understand the complexity, in order to understand, you know, different ways in which uh, cultural manifestations, etc. Yeah. Um, it's, it's important that you at least try to live in a similar fashion as, as the... The, the local population. With that being said, you know, it feels like I'm repeating myself, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you will, you know, fully understand. No. Because that's impossible. Yeah. I will always be an outsider. Um, and I will always have the possibility of leaving that area if, if it becomes more insecure or, you know, be evacuated. But I think putting yourself in those type of situations allows you to understand those nuances. And I think understanding those nuances are essential, for me at least, to to do a good job. And connect with the people. I'm just imagining like, let's say, one night there's bad rain, power shortage, and if you're staying in their environment, mm. you'll wake up pissed off that morning, just like them. Exactly. If you're staying in a nice gated community where you had light, you you had the roof and whatever, you're comfortable, you wake up jolly and happy and you won't be able to really connect with them in the same way. Exactly. That's just, uh, I got that image. 
No, definitely. And and as I said, like just just appreciating the the situation that's that's happening, and also the sense of community, mm. which usually is quite common. Mm. You know, if there's a lack of uh, structures in place, whether it's infrastructure or health services being provided, then the community usually steps up and and fill fills that vacuum. Mm. So there's a level of closeness in war-torn areas that um, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, find in many other places. But that is also because of necessity. It's because of the way in which the situation is, you know, on the ground. Mm. So what were you working with, like your actual work, and how did that look? So as I mentioned earlier, the... um, it was a single sector organization, uh, which means that we were solely focusing on on protection. So protection is basically everything from identifying different hotspot areas where cases of sexual assault or kidnapping or outburst of violence happens, and then uh, forming strategies in, in collaboration with the community uh, in terms of how to um, mitigate those insecurities okay are you working close to the police in this case the military or with the community close with everyone everyone yeah everyone um and so it's very important for me at least because as i mentioned as an outsider i can have an idea Mm. in terms of different types of solutions that would be necessary to to mitigate or stop uh acts of violence from occurring or but I am an outsider and I wouldn't necessarily fully be able to understand that complexity. So having that kind of uh, facilitating a discussion with community members where they come up with action plans, where they come up with different ways in which to um, to resolve these or to solve these issues is is absolutely necessary. So a lot of my work was actually just based on bringing people together and, and having these discussions coming up with action plans it could be anything from community patrolling to if women are to collect firewood that they that they move in larger groups mm. or having you know awareness sessions with with armed youth uh, talking about um, toxic masculinity mm. you know forming civil society organizations that that are able to kind of tackle these issues so empowering people that are from the community so that and you give them basically the tools mm. to to be able to solve these these issues the type of work that i did was was very broad yeah it could be anything as i mentioned anything from awareness raising to to uh providing uh training yeah but also always in constant communicating with with relevant stakeholders, whether it's the military or the police or local politicians or chiefs. Um. What is like the main thing that compelled you to get into this line of work? What's your your why maybe behind this? Um, I think my... My biggest, the biggest questions that I ask myself is, is just why violence? Why is it that, and that has been sort of a red 
thread throughout my my life. Why is it that certain type of people resort to violence? So the reason why I wanted to work in these type of areas is because I'm hoping that that would sort of shed more light in terms of why is it that that people resort to violence. I I don't plan to stay within the humanitarian field uh, forever. No. What do you see yourself transitioning to? I mean, ideally, I would like to form my own organization, um, you know, 15, 20 years from now. Yeah. Um, Working on issues of radicalization, on counter-extremism, on uh, kind of tackling the the amount of uh, youth, especially young young men that join, um, you know, different gangs, etc. Focusing specifically on northern europe so that is sort of the the end yeah. end goal if you will but before i reach that i want to be exposed um to different type of settings different type of environments that can allow me to have a more you know i feel like i'm using this word a lot but a more nuanced understanding of, of the issue because i think that is necessary i don't want to be 27 year old and already know like figured out the world you know so mentally i've prepared myself that um these upcoming 15 or even maybe 20 years will just be a long kind of learning experience for me yeah. uh, where i will continue to hopefully end up in in areas or in, in contexts where i have where i have these kind of mini crises where i start questioning everything that I know about the subject where I then can also land in a bit more kind of nuanced understanding of, of the subject um, breaking it down in, a, in order to break through exactly exactly because I believe in that like a lot yeah and I hope it sounds like an, a fantastic plan and I can really see you doing this I believe a lot in you and in yeah, this thank journey you, man. but one thing I hope you get the chance to you were talking about the youth part Mm. I hope you get the chance to do that today. Right. Because they might and they probably will um, respond to you in 15, 20 years. Right. But I think they will respond even Even more today. Yeah. So while you're getting that experience, which is very important, the nuance, also trying to, when you're back in Sweden or wherever, talk to to the kids today because I think they, they relate to us in a different way. Yeah, because we're still relatively young. Yeah, so, yeah it's no, just uh, yesterday we were sitting where they're sitting. So, exactly. Yeah. No, I, and I really appreciate you you saying that. Um, I think there's a lot of truth into into that that advice. So, I will. I I I'm hoping. I'm trying to still kind of figure out in what capacity yeah. I can do that. But um, but yeah, I, I'm definitely more. Um, I understand the the um, value, maybe. Yeah, the value. Not, I mean, I've always always understood the value, but more um, the benefit of yeah. doing it uh, at a relatively young age, because then you know, hopefully, they can relate to me in a different way. Yeah, and also as opposed to if I'm a old, <laughs> old, <laughs> old, old grumpy, grumpy dude. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And also, like, imagine you talking to someone today. Mm. And while you do, you're doing your journey for the next 15, 20 years, they will also be doing their journey and can follow you right. with this 10 
whatever 10, 15 years difference in between. Right, right. So I see that as well as being a, a benefit in doing that. Yeah, no, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'll definitely keep that in mind. Mm. What would you say are some common myths around violence and conflict and your type of work, line of work? I think um, there's a lot of myth around around violence. Um, I think one of those myths is understanding where it comes from, but also like how do we actually define violence? And I think for me, so it will depend on which day you ask me, but if you ask me today, violence for me is, is, is just language. Um, so if you don't have the vocabulary or the, the ability to express yourself uh, in a constructive way, you find other ways to, to express that. Um, That's well put. I'm relating that. Do you see that in kids before you develop that? Exactly. I think kids are a great example of that. Uh, so, you know, obviously looking at school children, uh, if they feel frustrated or if they're upset with something and they might not be able to put words into that, um, you know, then then that might manifest itself in a different way, in a in a more physical way yeah. in a more violent way and i think that is something that um you know that that comes also into issues of, of masculinity mm. obviously where a lot of young young men haven't been socialized or encouraged to put words into to their emotions that's a topic i want to dive more into because i i see the same problems in that as you do i believe exactly and i think Obviously, there are other aspects as well, um, but I think that that kind of realization that seeing violence, it isn't something that, you know, obviously, that all of a sudden a spirit possesses you and you start acting violence. Mm. I think seeing it as, as a language, mm. what this violent act that person A commits towards person B, what is it that they're trying to say, you know? Where does it come from? Uh, which is a difficult thing to do. Mm. You know, if somebody acts violence towards you, you don't stop and think, what does this Hold mean? Up. Exactly. You might get carried away, adrenaline, fear. Exactly, exactly. But I think it's, it's, it's important, you know, for my line of work to always kind of come back to that. You know, what is this an expression of? Yeah. Well, that's uh, well put and um, a, a great way of seeing it because there's a reference of kids and that's of course because of a lack of cognitive development mm. but in other situations it might be a lack of social structure lack of opportunity your voice not being heard that makes you resort to that final it's it's kind of primitive mm. sort of way of expressing yourself exactly exactly and also obviously you know you're you're shaped by your surroundings so if if that is a way that people in your surrounding have has communicated, then then I think there's a higher likelihood that you sort of adopt a similar approach. We learn by emulation, so exactly, and that's that is one of the sort of the biggest challenge. Like, how do you break that cycle of violence? Um, which is also evident in you know when you speak about trauma. Trauma is also generational. It's not. You can also inherit somebody else's trauma. So even though you and I are born and raised in, in, in Sweden, we can still sort of feel the trauma that our mothers went through. 
And if you then come from a war-torn area and you end up, you know, finding, um, you know, peace and, and et cetera in, in, uh, in Sweden, mm. that doesn't necessarily mean that that cycle stops right there. Not naturally, exactly. There's even though work needed to be done. Yeah. Exactly. Even though there, there is no active fighting taking place in the new setting that you move to, but that trauma can still be passed on. And I know that there's a lot of kind of research around this that speaks about that it takes around three generations for that trauma to, to, to disappear yeah. or to be dealt with, yeah. which is a very long time. But when it we is. speak about these issues, we automatically assume that as soon as you kind of leave that violent uh, environment, um, then violence sort of ceases to exist um, or trauma ceases to exist. Mm. Uh, without necessarily appreciating that it does have a much larger impact. And even if your kids or your grandkids aren't necessarily born into that environment, they can still be affected by it. But just by just hearing these stories, you know, by also observing the ways in which, you know, uh, the mannerism that, that the grown-ups have. How they relate to other grown-ups. And exactly, so exactly. It's so true, and I believe uh, your your thinking and your work, your line of work, and the work you're doing, might have the chance to cut that three generation uh, cycle shorter by spreading the knowledge and raising awareness of this. Because as soon as we become aware of our innate abilities and habits, we have the chance to do something about it. So, if everyone knew that this is a fact, this yeah. happens, we get the chance then to work with it. That's what I believe. Yeah, definitely. I, I 100% agree. And I think, you know, it's not written in stone that mm. it has to be three, no, three exactly. generations. But I, I think the reason why I give that as an example is that sometimes it, it does take long. Yeah. It does take a long time to heal. Um, and violence does have an impact, you know, on people's life. Um, and it does pass on to generation. And just breaking that cycle, it takes a lot of time. In order to do so, what uh, what trends do you see in your line of work? Do you see any like major trends? So I think uh, one worrying trend that we see right now um, is that um, the area of operation or the the kind of the arena where where humanitarians work mm. uh, is becoming more and more insecure. Um, so, in what way? In terms of there are more humanitarian workers that are now being targeted. Oh. Um, oh, no. Which means that, um, that, you know, there's also bigger collaboration between kind of the humanitarian sector and the military sector, you know, because sometimes we depend on peacekeepers, for instance, to guarantee our safety. So if we're traveling to one particular area, then for, for obvious reasons, uh, we might need you know, uh, an armed escort or, you know, uh, a military escort to, to take us from, from point A to point B. But one of the challenge with that is that as a humanitarian, you're supposed to kind of, um, portray or, or symbolize, um, a different alternative yes, than in a way. The military. Than the military. Now you're coming hand now in hand. Now you're sort of being yeah. associated with them. And I think that is, that is a challenge. That is a big challenge, uh, and I don't have any any good kind of solutions at the moment uh, in terms of how to solve that, because it's also necessary for for humanitarians to in order to access these areas. Um, 
to to have that kind of safety guaranteed. So that is one one quite worrying trend. Mm-hmm. It's risky enough as it is, but being a target, uh, you might lose people in that field. Uh, going into that field, even and and uh, exactly, yeah, creates a fear. Yeah, exactly. And you can't work out of fear. Exactly. So I think that is that is one one quite worrying um, worrying trend. Um, let me think. Is there anything in particular that you're? No, no just uh, just to general. get a view of the field, and uh, I don't know too many people working in this field, so it's interesting hearing uh, like history uh, trends, and that was a great answer. I think in terms of, um, I mean, another trend, and you started to see that also here in Sweden, yeah, where there's a bigger emphasis on uh, strengthening kind of the the cybersecurity aspect of things. Oh yeah. Um so obviously that doesn't necessarily affect my line of work as no. as a humanitarian, but just in the security sector as a whole. Uh where you have kind of you have different um attempts by by armed groups or or um you know uh, religious extremist groups to uh to radicalize or to to convert or to impact yeah. the way in which citizens think about yeah. their own government and using that as a weapon and it's a exactly. really powerful weapon as it is so uh, again encompassing in our lives uh, digital definitely development because that is that is an essential component it, and it's always has been in war that you don't necessarily just the battle doesn't always take place on the battleground no it also takes place in the hearts and minds of people yes using media using media using different means of communication to to convince the population that my cause is the just cause and the government's cause or whoever's cause is is unjust um but what happens in in you know in the more kind of digitalized we become the more interconnected we become it is even easier to kind of have those online propaganda to disseminate that information mm. in a more targeted way. Yes. Um so I think that is also something that that we'll see a lot more of. Very interesting. Great that you brought that up. I hadn't thought of it myself in this context, but it's so true. Yeah, yeah, no definitely. So moving on, looking forward. Yes. In the closest period, you have your next um mission no, next uh, uppdrag assignment you your next assignment coming yes. up tell us a little bit about that your expectations going into that as well so um my next work will be uh moving to to northern nigeria so it will also be focusing on on civilian protection and um context wise i think it will be very different uh obviously from from south sudan Usually what I do ahead of any kind of new deployment is that I, I try to uh, have quite an open mind in terms of what to expect and sort of expect the unexpected because um, that allows me to, to be as prepared as possible. Um, so one of the, the areas that I'll be based in is, is in the northeastern part of the country, which is obviously quite... Um, you know, has been unstable for, for, for a long period of time. 
Once again, Boko Haram has made news by kidnapping women and children in Nigeria. Now, as we all know, they're a terrorist group, so it's often easy for me to replace the actual group name, Boko Haram, with a generic post-9-11 understanding of the word terrorist. I know this is just my instinct to group things together to make them easier to understand, but I'd like to think I can handle more than just the one-word explanation, terrorist. So who are the Boko Haram? Well, first off, their real name is not Boko Haram. That's just what the local people call them. Roughly, it means Western Education Forbidden, but the actual group's name is the Congregation of the People of Tradition for Proselytism and Jihad. That is how they self-identify, and it says pretty much everything. They're a group of people holding on to traditional Islamic values, spreading and fighting for those values, which on its face doesn't sound all that violent. And initially, they weren't. The group was started by Muhammad Yusuf in 2002 with the intention of creating a true Islamic society under Sharia law, which is the strictest, most literal version of Islam. They were always a radical group, but not necessarily a dangerous one. They were like a tiny motorcycle club of extreme Islamists who'd have occasional and somewhat escalating dust-ups with the authorities. Then, in 2009, everything came to a head. Nigerian security forces killed Yusuf and many of his followers in what the media at the time called the Boko Haram uprising. But Yusuf's followers consider that incident a massacre of their people more than an actual uprising. And that is what turned them into the horrible militant biker gang we have today. Their new leader, Abu Bakar Shakao, has not changed the values of the group at all, but he does have them more focused on the last word in their name, jihad. Specifically, violent jihad against anyone not practicing their exact form of extreme fundamentalism. Basically, they want four things. They want Nigeria to follow their strict version of Sharia law. They want the end of Western education in Nigeria. They want death to anyone who doesn't share their beliefs. And they want to end the current government, which they deem corrupt and blasphemous. So they're very close to exactly what you think they are, terrorists. But these guys have motorcycles and are a tad more concerned with ending Western education than your run-of-the-mill terrorist group. Hence the kidnapping of school children from westernized schools in Nigeria. If you'd like to learn more interesting information about the world, click now to see our video about ISIS and the current mess in Iraq. And you'll be there for how long? So it's a one year? One year. One year contract. Do you have any like, um, not goals, but what do you wish to achieve? Um, it's always difficult to plan too far ahead uh, in these type of settings. Especially it's a new setting. You it's a new have setting. to get into it. Yeah, exactly. And I think even if you do put in a lot of work and energy in terms of building up the, the capacity of the civilian population to, to uh, deal with some of these, these issues, you know, if an attack would take place, it could sort of destroy all that work mm. that have taken months and months to, to build up. Because that is obviously one of the, the, the negative aspects of working in these type of environments that... Even if you, you know, spend a lot of time and energy trying to build something, it can easily be destroyed quite, quite quickly. So my mindset going into this line of work is usually trying to not uh, think too far ahead in advance. Take it for what, what it is maybe when you, when you reach. Exactly. And trying to have as much of an impact with as little resources as possible, you know, but also making sure that, you know, because ultimately I'll be there for a year, yeah. let's say, um, possibly longer than that. And I need to leave something tangible mm. behind. 
like infrastructure wise maybe um, yeah, knowledge wise yeah, everything yeah i mean i'm not i'm not the solution no. but if i can assist in terms of um you know sowing a seed maybe so yeah exactly in building that kind of that capacity then then i'll be more than happy to to do so well you'll have to come back uh, on this podcast yes, after you're yes, there and, and tell us more i'm looking forward to it so how much of your um, interest in learning comes from like personal drive and motivation uh, versus maybe external support and and that type of drive um i think i'm quite curious yeah. by by nature i can tell that yeah, yeah so so if there's something that i feel that i don't understand or if there's especially when it's topics that are quite controversial um so everything from you know issues of as i mentioned like radicalization or violence etc as soon as i feel that people speak about these topics with a lot of confidence that they've sort of figured it out that annoys me you know and that sort of sparks my my interest even more in terms of getting it you know and i'm using this word again a more nuanced understanding of of, of the the subject so usually when i start getting interested in a subject it starts off as me being frustrated mm. about the the quality of the, the debate mm. around that subject uh it can be anything from you know integration policies in in sweden to domestic violence to you know usually quite hot topics yeah. usually that also starts with me having like this gut feeling that the debate is too it's not nuanced enough or it's not it's more complex than that yeah we're missing something here we're missing something and i might not be able to put words into what we're missing mm. but just having that kind of gut feeling that something isn't right that later drives you into learning more exactly mm. uh so that's usually the process that i that i go through whenever i'm i'm become more interested in a, in a subject and whenever i feel like i've even landed in a you know even for myself like when i feel like i've i've figured this thing out uh, i might actively you know seek a group of people that think the complete opposite just to kind of remind myself that there's a world outside of my bubble yeah. you know that there's fighting your biases maybe if you develop some of those while studying into a subject exactly because i'm afraid of being too comfortable in my own opinions you know i, I always want to have that level of uh doubt i think it's 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 healthy definitely definitely and i try to have the same mm. it's hard i think it's not hard but it's maybe different doing that while doing a podcast for example where right. i think most of the podcasts or successful podcasts are very opinionated and controversial or whatever i'm trying to do the complete opposite, opposite yeah. open-mindedness listening and then yeah reflecting on that yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah it's i'll just reference that to doing that while while communicating yeah like no, communicating I, i think it's really mind. important mm. i think it's really important because sometimes we even when we're in discussions with people conversations we're just waiting for my cue you know like now it's my time to say what i want to say but you're not necessarily paying attention to what the other person is is saying mm. you know and sometimes we speak to each other but not together yeah 
and a lot speaking past each other. Exactly, yes. past each other or yeah. at each other. Yes, yeah. That's the word that I was looking for. So yeah, that's that's really important. Yeah, well said. So it's been a fantastic conversation. We're yeah, reaching definitely. two hours here. So okay, wow. Talking time, yeah. <laughs> So I want to ask you, uh, I'll uh, skip my recurrent questions. I think we've covered a lot of the, the content of the questions in mm-hmm. this conversation. So my final question, I meet a lot of people and this podcast enhances that even further. The type of conversations I have is often very similar to this. It's right. many people asking or talking about their life choices and life path and figuring that out. I. I think I pulled the conversations in that way because that's mm-hmm. what I want to talk about. So, and I've had uh, a lot of people asking me questions related to your field, wanting to get into your field, uh, work within social impact and, and do what you're doing. Right. So now I have this conversation to reference to, but also, and related to, you told me coming into this that you have been invited to give a keynote yeah. at your old high school. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So my question is, what advice would you give someone interested in following your career path? Or what advice will you be giving these people at uh, your high school, old high school? So I think, um, as I mentioned earlier, like, I think there's, there's two ways of looking at it. Either you can follow an already um, kind of predefined template. Yeah. And that already exists. Yeah. So there's this kind of traditional way of entering this line of work that a lot of Swedes do. Yeah. You know, so you, you might do one or two degrees abroad, uh, focusing on international relations or international politics or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, you might do like an internship at, a, at an embassy. Mm. You might apply for the, the diplomat course or work for uh, a government agency. Uh, and then you start sort of applying to these international organizations. Mm. So that is sort of uh, the traditional route. As I mentioned before, like our time on this earth is, is borrowed. We're here only for a limited period of, of time. And if you see it as a checklist, you're only already thinking about the next step instead of trying to kind of become an expert in your field or mm. in your subject. Mm. So I do see a danger in that. And I also think that in order to think creatively around these issues, you need people with different backgrounds. So having someone that stands out doesn't necessarily always have to be a bad thing. So I think finding kind of that balance between, you know, the traditional path, the traditional route, but also specifically finding... uh, pursuing or or seeking uh situation or circumstances where you develop skills rather than you occupy a certain position Mm. can take you a very long way Mm. and that has helped me in in my career a lot yeah because ultimately i can tell them that you know if i'm applying a job i can have a conversation about the type of organizations that i worked for Mm mm-hmm but that becomes less interesting because ultimately I need to be good at what I do. And being in these spaces, being in these environments, having difficult conversations with, you know, everything from military actors to, to corrupt, you know, politicians yeah. or whatnot, 
it is a valuable skill in this line of work. It isn't just sufficient knowing how to, you know, mingle or speak with other fellow diplomats. Mm. Exactly. Um, you need to be able to speak with many different types of people uh, and be able to maneuver in different types of settings. Because conflicts are complex and it doesn't always take place in, you know, around a discussion table, you know, in a mm. fancy hotel. So being exposed to, to these type of environments, I think, is, is key, for me at least. Mm. That's great advice, really. And I think if, if other people have that possibility, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to work in, in conflict areas if, if that is something that, that feels too daunting or, or challenging. Um, because I have full respect for people who doesn't want to do that. But it, always keeping that, that in mind, you know, that you're not, the, you're not a final product yet. You still have to continue learning and continue being open. Mm. So actively seeking those, those spaces. Um, I have a, a, a slogan or what you should call it that I use where it's progress is the concept. It's talking about, it's the progress, it's mm. the, the, the journey really. Other than the, the final. Yes. Yeah, the destination. Yeah. Yeah. yeah which is definitely the, the key because even if at the age of 22 or 23, I might have a clear idea that this is where I want to end up. But yeah. if I haven't been exposed to different type of environments, there's really very difficult for me to know, you know, because uh, then I'm not making an informed decision. I'm just making a decision based on the information I have at a, as a 22 year old. Yes. That I want to end up working for the UN or whatnot. But if I keep on being in these environments, mm. then I make, can make a more informed decision. Based on experience. Based which on experience. Gain. So experience is not age, it's what you actually do. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 100%. Great man, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been this has been great. Yeah, it's yeah, been I a really great enjoyed conversation. It. Thank you. I really enjoyed it as well. Great catching up as well. Likewise, likewise. And I wish you all of luck with your work in uh, coming work in Nigeria. Thank you. And future as well. And thank you. Can't likewise, wait to have you likewise. Back. Thank, thank you. you. Take care. You've been listening to the Learnability Podcast, and I'm your host, Innocent Maginga. If you want to contribute to the platform or find previous episodes and additional material, you can do that at learnability.online. Learnability.online. And oh yeah, don't forget to subscribe.